Hi, I'm John McAdam, and before we have our traditional introduction to Stick to Wrestling, I want to give a shout-out to listener Jesse Lohman, who had a really scary health experience over the last weekend, and we... Yeah, just worry, Jesse, but you kicked out, and thank you for listening. We're glad you're still around, and this show is dedicated to you. Let's go. Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. my party and I'll cry if I want to because the Stick to Wrestling podcast just ended. I want to thank that little cutie Leslie Gore for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, we will give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. I am John McAdam. Before I get started, I want to thank Pat Bogus for donating to Stick to Wrestling. If you would like to donate, my PayPal is prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. We keep it ad-free. We keep it sponsor-free, so we just get rolling. And if you want to join our Facebook group, just put in a request, do a, a search for Stick to Wrestling, and you're in. Cool pictures, cool results, cool wrestling talk, etc. If you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And I want to bring on someone we have never had as a guest before, I'll explain why. This guy, he's multiple oceans of wrestling knowledge. And I'm just looking for 60 minutes and like, I don't even know where to start with him. He knows so much. He's been a fan for a long time. He predates me getting the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Mr. Vandal Drummond, also known as Kurt Brown. How are you, my friend? I am doing quite well, although I feel like my name is Methuselah now. (laughs) You've got three aliases at this point. That's right. Well, if you combine all my uh, different incredibly strange wrestling identities, I I could probably, uh, well, I might even hold a record, even over some of the people from Argentina who had multiple identities. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I, I forgot you were involved with Totally, what was it again? Totally Strange Wrestling? Oh, Incredibly Strange Wrestling. It was, you know, one of Johnny Legend's uh inventions and he was inspired by Argentina wrestling. That's what got him going. And, uh, he took it after the, what was that, uh, 60s movie, the incredibly strange creatures who died and became mixed up zombies or something like that. Something like that. And then in the late 1980s, Jonathan Ross in England did a series called the incredibly strange film show. And, they did an episode on the Santo movies, which included Johnny Legend reuniting Lorena Velasquez with the Aztec mummy. That's where he got the idea for Incredibly Strange Wrestling. And uh, uh, like I just mentioned earlier, somebody brought it up on Twitter. I, or in fact, it was Fredo who brought it up. And I just said, yeah, and that uh, wrestling, that Incredibly Strange Wrestling that everybody decried as being a, a disgrace at the time was one of the few who actually paid us to wrestle. <laughs> Now, this was the thing that involved, like, Ron Head, right? Yes, it was. Oh, he was great. (laughs) I mean, let me me tell you a little bit. Let me give you an idea of what Incredibly Strange Wrestling did. They had a wrestler known as the Abortionist, right? And that's what he did. And they brought in a guy to feud with him called Cletus the Fetus, who the Abortionist just didn't finish off. When Cletus was a young age, 
and they're feuding over this. If I'm Cletus, I'm pretty mad. This is how crazy these guys were. Yes, and Cletus was the invention. Uh, Cletus the fetus was the invention of Johnny Legend, and the abortionist was the invention of Ron Head and J.R. Benton. J.R. Benton, that's right. Yes, and I was honored that they asked me to be the abortionist, and they asked uh, Fisico Nuclear, my my you know one of my closest friends ever, and buddy in wrestling, and uh, he was Cletus the fetus, and we debuted that in San Francisco, and so they were. <laughs> I think Ron Ron and Jr.'s idea was the abortionist would be a heel, but this was San Francisco, so they were cheering the roof off, and. Ron Head realized that right away and said, that's right, he's pro-choice, guys. Like, he's our man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are off to a roaring start. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so, Kurt, <laughs> you have been a fan for, for a long, long time. When did you first start watching this crazy pro-wrestling stuff? I got such a great introduction to pro wrestling because I was 10 years old. It was 1972 during the uh, Munich Summer Olympics. And my family was not a sports family other than maybe some tennis or just badminton, some like, you know, that kind of stuff. And a friend of mine was staying the night. And so I had no concept of what professional wrestling was even. I'd never heard of it. And we're switching channels on a Saturday night and I turn on and there is a uh, this guy, Fritz von Goring, in, you know, spandex and this big mustache, just beating the crap out of uh, Salvador Lothario in a TV studio. And I'm seeing these grown men in a boxing ring acting the way kids are told not to act. You're not supposed to go out and start <laughs> fights and shit like that. And I'm yelling to my friend, John, look at, look at this. Look at this. What is this? And he just looks at me like, what do you mean? What is that? That's wrestling. And I see somebody raking somebody's eyes. I'm like, what, wrestling? What? Wait, no, no, wrestling, you, you're on a mat and you're trying to pin somebody. And, but I was infatuated. I mean, infatuated. And, you know, <laughs> my, my poor family, I mean, they're trying to get me to watch the Olympics. And I'm saying, those Olympics, man, man those, guys are, those guys are pussies. Look at these guys. <laughs> they're out to kill, man. <laughs> And then I'd see guys cutting promos, and I it was just love at first sight. And then, uh, lo and behold, you know, those next – so this was 1972. The next six months, the two wrestlers really just captured my imagination. You know, the one where obviously I didn't know anything about wrestling, but I – I learned that there were wrestlers, and then there were wrestlers, and the two guys that just blew the roof off uh, my own uh, my own house was uh, Raul Mata and Jack Briscoe, because Briscoe came in uh, when he was, you know, lobbying to when they were lobbying him to be NWA champion, so he would you know go town to town, and he made an appearance, and when I saw him wrestle, and whenever I see Raul Mata wrestle, I would just say. These are guys with like this dynamis, dynam, dynam, boy. Okay, and I'm sober too, and here I am stumbling on words. These guys are dynamic, unlike the other guys. So while it was years before I learned the concept of working and stuff like that, within six months, you know, I was able to uh, see kind of how the, how would you say, 
how the storyline worked. I, you know, you, like a lot of people, you learn that no matter how close Mondo Lopez gets to winning, he's going to get his butt kicked because he's a jobber. Uh, but, you know, as a little kid, I just kept suspending my disbelief, and it was just it it was just such a great storytelling experience for me as a child. I always wondered, like I read in the magazines about Raul Mata getting a big push in the Los Angeles area, and then I'd see him on Florida TV in like 1980 as just an underneath guy. You know, I never understood that, but I, I know he was big out out in Los Angeles. Well, it's funny because uh, I was actually talking with Dave Meltzer recently about this because uh, I was interviewing for some interviewing him for some projects I'm doing, and we were talking about the different way different way promoters would promote Latinos, and L.A. was somewhere kind of in between Roy Shire, who would, in San Francisco, who would promote a couple of Latinos, and Paul Bosch, who would push Latinos through the roof. And then there was L.A. who kind of was um, somewhere in between where they had pushed some Latinos, but they totally underestimated how big an audience they could have drawn if they pushed a lot more wrestlers from Mexico. And he talked about uh, when he knew Paul Bosch back in the day. I'm talking about Meltzer. And Bosch said what made him push the Latinos through the roof was when in his early days of promoting, he and somebody else was promoting a show and it drew like, I think like 3000. And then a week later, uh, just a local Mexican promoter promoted in that same arena with El Santo on the card and with no television or anything and the place sold out. And Paul Bosch never forgot that lesson because if you look at Paul Bosch's lineup, he he didn't just use Mil Moscaris to no. draw. He had Gordon and Goliath, Jose Lothario, El Halcón, Psicodelico, everybody. Chavo. And what's that? A uh, Chavo Guerrero. Yes, yeah, Chavo Guerrero. Chavo Guerrero. Um, I mean, he he uh, learned right away and he went with it. Where for some reason, American promoters were hesitant to do that. And LaBelle was kind of uh, in between, and I, I think they kind of, you know, I think they kind of underestimated just how bigger an audience they could have held on to for a longer time if they didn't, you know, push a larger number of wrestlers from Mexico or Puerto Rico, you know, but that's just how, <laughs> that's how promoters were back in the day. They, yeah. You know, they were very kind of like a tunnel visioning and just thinking, ah, we got a token this, a token that, what else do we need? And Mata also, when he went to Florida, it's my understanding that that's where he met his wife and like, you know, his family was a big deal to him. And so he's probably limited to kind of staying in the Florida area. And when you do that, it's not unusual that you get kind of cast in the role of uh, talent enhancement because you're probably not working as full time as you were, you know, once you, I think he owned an auto shop or something like that. I'm not quite sure. Never got to meet him. That's my one regret. Is Raul Mata still with us? No, he passed away about three years ago. I don't know the cause. Uh, I think his wife passed away 10 years earlier, and uh, apparently he was still a very nice guy afterwards, but after his wife passed, but wasn't quite the same, and just kind of was a little... uh, I don't know if he was reclusive is the word, but uh, I was always hoping he'd show up somewhere and I'd get to meet him, but apparently... You know, he he was kind of a little less uh, prolific after that. No, I, I can I can see that. You know, you're right. The more I think about it, 
I mean, Bosch, he used just about every Hispanic or Latino wrestler out there. Florida, I mean, they got Manny Fernandez. They got Peter Morales for a while. I'm trying to think of who else. Moscaris, you know, made a, an occasional tour there. But, I mean, there, there are plenty of Latinos in Florida, obviously. And they oh, yeah, and, and that's the lot. funny part is a lot of the promoters that even – it wouldn't even be like a wrestler from Mexico. It would be a Mexican-American wrestler, you know. <laughs> it, it was always uh, – a. Yeah, there's always like a very, you know, a limit to what they would do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'll I'll tell you what. Let me hear a little bit more about like the history of the California wrestling that you watch. Like, what was your favorite feud growing up? Wow, there's a few. One that took place here in California, and the other that took place on our TV airwaves, but actually took place in Argentina and. The California feud that really sparked my imagination was a very brief one, but it was Ruben Juarez and Ernie Ladd. And now, when er- Ernie Ladd was, was like the bully heel, and he was the only heel, I think, who ever really, really scared me. Because <laughs> he would his gimmick was he would torture the, the wrestlers who were half his size with his thumb. And I don't know if they did this in other territories, but the wrestlers would start spitting up blood and going to death spasms, and I, that just freaked me out. <laughs> ben Juarez, I've seen him in magazines, but I mean, I don't think I've, I don't think I've heard his name like since the seventies or eighties. So he was kind of the underneath guy who who stood up to the bully. Yeah, he was the giant killer, and I remember years ago talking to Jeff Walton, and he said that was all Ernie Ladd's idea. What happened was. And I actually got to see this match in its entirety because for some reason they just aired it one night on uh, the Spanish station like a month after it happened. But there was a Texas death match with Ernie Ladd and Mil Moscaris. And at the end, uh, Ernie Ladd is just all over Moscaris and destroying him. And, you know, Moscaris is just staggering, barely getting up. And Ladd won't back off from the referee's count and keeps jagging, jabbing him with his thumb. And my hero, Raul Mata, runs in to make the save, and he he belts Ladd a few times. And I and Mata had a great look of rage in his face whenever he was doing that babyface, angry babyface comeback. And Ladd sells his first few shots, and then he rakes Mata across the eyes, and then he starts jabbing Mata in the throat and Mata does the thing where he spits up the blood and starts going to death spasms. And when he does, Ruben Wars runs into the ring in a suit and everything. And he takes off his dress shoe and just starts and belts Lad across the head with it and belts him over and over until Lad like is just laying in the corner and Lad, you know, then started foaming at the mouth. And... Oh my. <laughs> And I so wish I was here for it, but years later at Cauliflower Alley, uh, it just happened that Ruben Juarez and Ladd were at Cauliflower, and Juarez actually was telling people, this is the guy who got me over. <laughs> it's very, it's really nice of him to remember all of that. Let's talk about Mil Moscaris. Now, you yeah. just described a scenario where Mil Moscaris totally put over Ernie Ladd. Like, er, he let Ernie Ladd destroy him. It is of my opinion that as of right now, the year 2022, 
Neil Moscaris is the most under, and I said underrated wrestler of all time. He has gotten a bad rap for so long, and not only was he not that bad at his worst, he was really good at his best. Now, you got to see a lot of Moscaris. Can you share some of your memories? Yes, he's another guy. I didn't quite see him the way I saw somebody like Briscoe or Mata, but at the same time, yeah, he had a mystique to him. I mean, you know, for all the things people say about Moscaris, about his enormous ego, and he does have one, that is true, he knew how to market himself. It's funny because the same people, I, I, I just got done reading Brian Solomon's awesome book on The Sheik, and the one thing I kept thinking is I know a lot of people, the same thing people blame Moscaris for, you know, not wanting to do jobs and trying to protect his mystique was the exact thing they praised the Sheik for. But that's what made him who he was. And it was something I didn't really appreciate until years later is when you see him wrestling somebody like the Destroyer, you saw how much Moscaris loves working, not just getting in the ring and grandstanding, but working. And uh, somebody else who confirmed that was Jack Armstrong, who, you know, uh, unfortunately, most people know him for California Championship Wrestling, but he was much more than that. He was enhancement talent in uh, New York, Florida, Georgia, here in L.A. for, you know, since the 60s. And one of the nicest people you'll ever meet and also somebody with some of the best cardio you'd ever see in wrestling. And he said when he would wrestle Mosquerous, if it wasn't, say, a TV match where they you know, had to go seven minutes and just have Mosquerous look like Superman, if they were like in a, you know, in a dark match somewhere, he said Mosquerous just loved to go as long as he was willing. He said Mosquerous just... <laughs> just loved being in the ring and working his butt off. And so he loved working with Armstrong because Armstrong's another guy who said, yeah, let's work 30 minutes straight. You know, this is, you know, we're having a party here. I mean, Mosker is, you know, I saw a match of his, I want to say from 2007 or 2008 in, I, yeah, in Japan. Like, okay, this guy, he can't need the money. He's doing it because he wants to do it. And, I don't know how old he was at that point. He had to be in his 60s, I think. And, you know, just guys who do it for the love. I I respect the guys who do it for money, but the the guys who love doing it, I have a lot of respect for. Oh, same here. Same here. You know, and and like I said, you know, you know, I heard he can be difficult at times. I'm sure he has a bit of an ego, but. You know, it sounds like he loves what he does. Oh, and, you know, another big proponent of his was in Jack Briscoe's autobiography. He said that was one of his favorite people to work with. He said it was fun. It was like having a night off. You're, you know, you know, and I used to be I'll be honest with you. I used to be on that boat of people who when I'd hear all the stories about his out of control ego and just, you know, he could be obnoxious, and, you know, shit like that. But, you know, uh, I've heard other stories over the years and I've learned, well, there's a balance here and. I, I I also remember uh, Conan when Conan was young in the business, and you know, uh, I think he gets on with Moscaris okay, but he had a lot of issues with him early on. But he also said, you know, I'll say a lot of things about him, and he says, but one thing I will say is he's not a pussy, and he he knows how to market himself. He knows what he's doing, and I have a hunch. If you ask Conan, you could say Conan probably actually learned that from him too. You know, because Conan learned how to market himself. 
Yeah, Conan, now Conan was really big in Southern California in like the early '90s. I want to say late '80s. The late '80s, he was huge in Tijuana, and he was start. That was, I think, around the time he started getting huge in Mexico. That's like right around the time I met him. I want to say he started in '87. He was a student of the original Rey Mysterio, and he's somebody who did his homework. I used to talk with him a lot, and he used to he'd, he'd contact all the tape traders back in the day when other wrestlers would never even think of doing uh, such because he was trying to figure what gets people over, like why somebody can get over in the states but not Japan, and vice versa. And he was trying to do really cool flying-looking moves, and he realized, well, that's not a fit with me. That doesn't get me over. And, yeah, he, he was somebody who always – he had like a thousand questions every time I would talk with him, <laughs> even though I was not really – you know, other than doing indie stuff, I wasn't a worker myself. But he would ask other wrestlers, and he'd ask fans, like, what do you think of this, that, and the other thing? Do you think this works? Do you think – you know, this gets over. And he'd even ask you, why, why does this appeal to you? And so he was the guy with a thousand questions and you know, look where I got him. (laughs) That's funny because I have met guys who, I mean, they've been in wrestling school for a month and they think they know everything and they certainly weren't going to ask a fan something. And, And you have Conan, a big star who you're saying had a million questions. He did. He did. And I think that's how he got in the fast track to being a star. I mean, you know, he put in a few years as a local boy. uh, But back then, that was the fast track is, you know, by early 90s, he did the main event with Pero Aguayo, the hair versus mask, which is what probably cemented his career in Mexico as a superstar. And... You know, and again, like Moscars, he he had a, he had an ego on him too. I mean, he was, you know, he wanted to make himself up there. He didn't just want to be in the business; he wanted to be it. And uh, you know, but he, yeah, he didn't go in there being all presumptuous. And like you said, there's so many people who act, who get in the business, they act like they know the business after the first year, or, or you know, they're working indies for two years and wonder why they don't have a push yet. <laughs> Yeah, it's the trip. <laughs> it, it really is, you know, and I, I I get it. There's that balance between I need to protect my, you know, my character and hey, dude, you're just being on an ego trip. You know, Cactus Jack, Mick Foley is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. We were, we were talking about Mil Moscaris earlier mm-hmm. and Foley in his book got it seemed like he got his feelings really hurt when Ric Flair told him, you know, before the Clash of the Champions match against Moscars, you know, hey, this match isn't about you. And I get it. The match wasn't about a young, upcoming Mick Foley. It was about Mil Moscaris. Yes, yes. And, you know, and it's funny because there's so many roles in wrestling. And yeah, I don't want to go on the know your role quote or anything like that, but... <laughs> Every role is valuable, and I think sometimes a younger wrestler doesn't realize how valuable he can be being the supporting player. And uh, I I mentioned this recently on uh, the 605 podcast. What always intrigued me, one of the first wrestlers I ever met was a guy who wrestled here in L.A. as bad boy Bobby Lane, who who both his parents were wrestlers, wrestlers. Robert Pico and Anne Laverne and his sister is Marie Laverne. 
And I knew him in 1981. And when he came to L.A., they immediately started pushing him, eventually giving him both a tag championship and the America's championship. And it's funny because (laughs) one of the first conversations I had with him, he's saying, this is too weird. I I don't know what's going on here. And we're going, what? He says, they're pushing me. That's not what I do. I put people (laughs) over. (laughs) And And he said... They're putting microphones in front of me. I, I've never cut a promo before. <laughs> and uh, I was like 19, and I, I didn't know much about the business. I'm saying, wait, this guy wants to lose? And he says, it's what I do, and I do it well. The funny part is in the dressing room in 1981, he probably could have cleaned house in a fight with like half the dressing room at least, if not more. He was a, you know, he's a badass guy. But what he was proud of, was going in looking like a badass guy, kicking some butt, but he said, in the end, my butt gets kicked, and they know my butt was kicked, and I made this guy look like an ass kicker. That's what he took pride in. And he was very good in the other role that he wasn't quite ready for, too. Like he, Once he started getting comfortable on the microphone, he cut really good promos, and uh, he was great at going over. But I, like in all the time, whenever you know I wrestled, and of course I... You know, I mainly wrestled just in little indie shows, but I always kept that in mind. How do I make this guy look like an ass kicker, you know? Yeah, you know, Bobby Lane, I, I don't think I had ever heard of him before just now. And it, it, Mr. Lane, if you're listening, I apologize. I mean, it just <laughs> goes to show, I mean, if the guy is the American champion and the America's champion, excuse me, and tag team champion in 1981, that kind of shows you like how little coverage Los Angeles was getting at that time. And I, I talked a little bit about this when Dan Farron was on, but what was it like, Kurt, seeing the, the Los Angeles promotion slowly but surely becoming less and less relevant every year? I mean, in hindsight, it's just kind of what happens to promotions. Promoters don't keep up with the times. Promoters don't keep up with modern media and how to work around it. And they... Well, kind of like, remember when the whole uh, WWF went national in the mid-80s? I remember that you'd hear every now and then promoters, you know, regional promoters saying, oh, it's a fad, it's going to go away. And I have a hunch that something like that was going on with LaBelle, too. I think he didn't just do his homework. That's probably simplifying the whole thing. But back when I was like 18, 19, it was a huge tragedy to me because this was the wrestling I grew up watching. We no longer had, uh, well, Gordon and Goliath, who was like, in my mind, the greatest tag team I have ever seen. You know, we had some good workers, but, you know, the workers were getting paid less than before. I know like in the 70s, even though the pay wasn't good, Somebody through the promotion was able to get them apartments that were like just down the street from the beach in Santa Monica. So, you know, the travel wasn't, you know, insane. They didn't have to do those eight hour drives you did in some other territory. So there were some perks to L.A. By the time I was there, they were keeping them in some, you know, so-so hotel down the street from the Olympic Auditorium you know, in downtown LA where there was nothing to do. (laughs) And, you know, the pay was horrid. Uh, That last year, uh, I know of two wrestlers who were living out of their cars. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I mean, the territory was on fire 
I I started watching just a year too late to see the famous Blassie Tolis feud, but you know, uh, you know, I bring up Gordon and Goliath. I mean, those guys were heat seekers, and it's funny. I think of the most historically significant matches I've ever seen. One was I was there live for uh, the 1980 Omni match where Oli turned on Dusty. Oh, you're part of that convention. Yeah, yeah, I was part of the convention, Barry Rose, Pete Lederberg, all those cats. And I was uh, there in Japan with Meltzer when um, um, Saruta put over a Masawa in 1990. But I remember that. Yeah, oh God, that was amazing seeing it live. Seeing, people, seeing fans actually crying after the finish, that was wild. But if you could transport me... To back in time to experience a match live is seeing Black Gordman and Goliath as a tag team live. And this wasn't even a main event. There was a match I saw uh, of them in 1974 where they wrestled uh, Tony Rocco and La Pantera Negra, who were both uh, mid-card workers, very good mid-card workers. And uh, Rocco, in fact, was a very tough mid-card work, worker, kind of a uh, I think Don Morocco recently described him as a Les Thornton type, very tough guy. You know, and Kurt, I have been pronouncing his name incorrectly for w- well over forty-five years now. I, I see him and <laughs> saw him in magazines. I'm like, oh, Tony Rocco. <laughs> well, that's because we had the great Jimmy Lennon introducing him. So Jimmy Lennon always got. Names right. I you know I heard other other promotions saying, "Oh, tonight we have Tony Raka, you know, or something <laughs> like that, or Tony Rico." But uh, yeah, Tony Rocco. And you know, and and you know, I'd been watching wrestling for two years, so I knew, oh, Gordon and Goliath are going to win. But Gordon and Goliath were so convincing at being such not only just nasty heels, but when they would give the babyface their rub. They would sell for them so believably that you would think the other team is actually going to go over. And to LaBelle's credit, every now and then they would do something like that where the mid-card team would beat the top team or a mid-card wrestler would beat somebody on top just to make people go, what? (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Uh, And the way Gordman and Goliath sold when baby faces came back on them, especially Gordman, they sold like the bullies on the schoolyard who were just smacking everybody around. But once somebody smacks them back, they cry like bitches. And they did something that night where Gordman like went to punch one of the faces and missed and hit the ring post again. And uh, Rocco and uh, Negra are both just like working his wrist over and over. And he's holding that wrist just like this little bitch of a kid with this look in his face like, Mom, somebody just hurt me. <laughs> the place went crazy. Eventually, though, the uh, heels come back. Gordon and Goliath won. And the place, I mean, that's the first time I ever saw like garbage being hurled into the ring and people being kicked out of the arena. And that was only the second match of the evening but it stole the show in my book. And if I could go back in time, I'd, I'd want to experience that all over again, even over those two other historic matches I saw. So when you know, LA was hot, it was hot. I, I believe it. And, you know, I, I'm going to ask, ask you more. I mean, uh, but like, you know, the WWF I grew up on never did anything like that. It was beyond predictable. You pretty much knew who was going to win every single match. 
that's why I was so surprised when, you know, Tito Santana beat Morocco. It seemed so out of, you know, the realm of, of possibility. But to me, that that's how you have to present wrestling or how you had to back in the 70s or 80s. There had to be an occasional upset. Kansas had to beat Nebraska at some point. And at some point, like, you know, if you're having this match, you have to have an upset. And I, I wish the WWF did that more often. Yeah, I agree. And it, th- what was interesting about living in L.A. was um, I don't know why we were the lucky ones, but for some reason, if I went snooping around on the UHF stations back in the day, California would have like UHF stations that would show wrestling from other areas for like maybe two or three months, like one summer I can't remember which is one of the Spanish stations, but they showed WWF wrestling in English. <laughs> Go figure. But it was on late night Saturdays. And then uh, what year well, was that? Lot, that was 1975. It was when uh, Spiros Arion turned on a uh, strongbow. Oh, wow. I'm pretty certain that or, or well, there were two times they did 75 and 77. I can't remember which one, which year it was where they showed those tapes. But uh, they also, of course, they showed the IWA, the Eddie Einhorn tapings, which actually a lot of territories got. But uh, here's another oddity is uh, the first year I was watching in 72, they showed the old Chicago tapings with Bruiser and Valentine and Sheik, although they were narrated in Spanish and they were already 10 years old. I was going to say, Wow. Yeah, yeah, and and then the one that I talk about the most that's they started airing early in 73 is they started airing Titanes and El Ring from Argentina. And that just blew me away cuz they showed that would air on Channel 22 a Spanish station the same time the LaBelle wrestling would uh air. And so I remember one night I, during a commercial I decided to turn on this, you know, Argentina wrestling just, you know, to see, huh, I wonder what this is. And I see Peppino the Clown dancing to the ring to this theme song. And I'm going, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> and initially I was like all offended thinking, oh, I think they're trying to make fun of wrestling. But as I watched it, I'm saying, no, wait a minute. This is like, what is this? And then you know, I see a spaceman that's being delivered from a space capsule to wrestle. And he has a magic pacifying gun. And... <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. When he wrestled Joe the Mercenary, who was wrestling very dirty, he had no choice but take his pacifying gun. And Joe suddenly became polite, wrestled clean, and the spaceman beat him. You know, sometimes you need somebody like that. (laughs) (laughs) And this stuff was, you know, I didn't learn its complete history until over 20 years later. But that promotion was like a monolith that it started in 1962 and uh, it kept going uh, up until 1988. It, it was, uh, I mean, the guy who ran it and was the star wrestler, Martin Caradagian. I mean, he's still a recognizable name in Argentina over 30 years after his passing. In fact, yesterday I think was his hundredth birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he was a huge uh, icon for the um, Armenian community in Argentina because his parents actually fled the genocide in Turkey to come to Argentina. 
And when he was in Argentina, you know, the first wave of Argentine immigrants, uh, the Argentines would refer to the immigrants as Turks, which is a real slap in the face, you know, calling you by the name of the people that murdered your uh, your kinfolk. Yeah. And he had a hard time getting into the business because when he got into wrestling, they were still pushing larger guys like they do in America. And he was a smaller dude, but he, again, I think he's a guy who did his homework and he figured out how to get in the niche. When he became a star, he insisted that they bill him as the Armenian Martin Karadigian and just, you know, told them I, I want to be referred to that all the time. And I read about this, not in a wrestling journal, but in an Armenian American journal about five years back where they credited him with like really getting in the public's face, like not the public, but the corporation's faces saying, you know, stop calling us Turks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this, I'm loving this conversation. What was the biggest show you ever attended in like around Los Angeles? Wow. Well, that would be post territory days. And that would be the first two AAA shows that, um, Antonio Pena promoted along with Ron Scholar, and I'm tickled to say I got to wrestle on one of those shows. I, oh wow! The on, only time I wrestled in front of more than 500 people. <laughs> so I remember reading experience. about those shows in the Observer and just going like, "How are they? They drew a couple of sellouts, didn't they?" Yes, they did. Oh, it and most of them were walk-ups. It wasn't a huge advance crowd, and. I mean, it's a shame it didn't keep going, but those first that first year they were running it, it was a hit. Now, how about before, let's say uh, the old LaBelle promotion? Like, what was the biggest show you ever attended there? Well, I didn't get to attend a lot of uh, shows growing up. Like I said, my folks weren't that into wrestling. Every now and then, my dad would bring me to a, a wrestling match. But <laughs> my folks saw how obsessed I was with it, and I don't think they were – they thought it was the healthiest thing to be obsessed with. Gee, I, 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 I've i never experienced that. <laughs> yeah, we come back from the days where uh, where wrestling back then was a niche, you know, entertainment, you know, phenomenon. Yeah. But um, it, it's like most of the kids I knew watched wrestling, but I was one of the few in my school who was obsessed with it. So I really didn't see a lot of really huge shows. I mean, my fondest memories, to be honest with you, are uh, when Tom Burke got me my uh, a press pass when I was 17 so I could write articles for like Ring Wrestling, those kinds of magazines. Going to the little matchbox arenas, I mean, I, I fell in love with those places, even over the Olympic Auditorium, the little San Bernardino Arena, you know, that was for boxing and wrestling. I mean, the ring was built into the place. The seats were built into the place. You know, that's what that place was for. And then Strongbow Stadium, which I discovered a few years later, you know, very similar thing. These little arenas seated maybe, what, 1,500 people. They had an ambiance. You know, I, I miss those places, you know. You know, Kurt, I, I am blown away right now. Did, who, else, who else did you write for? Just the ring or were there other publications? There really weren't a lot. I, I, you know, my timing was a little bad. If I was a little older, I might have gotten in on more. When Tom Burke got me my press pass, ring wrestling was done 
in accord with Ring Boxing Magazine, you know, office in New York. And they actually would pay anywhere from 50 to 75 and occasionally even $100 for uh, an article if you were a story for them. Well, by the time I got writing for them, it was right when they sold to uh, Jim Melby and Norman Keitzer, who suddenly started paying like, I think, 20 bucks per article. At oh. the <laughs> um, and so I, I really just, God, who else did I write for? Not that many others. I think I'd, I'd write for other people's newsletters. Uh, and to be honest, my writing really sucked back then. <laughs> but um, oh, You were 19. Yeah, I was 19. But as years went by, Wrestling World, I wrote a, a number for them, a number of stories for them. I loved writing for them because you always got 125 per article. And, uh, you know, that's changed, too. No wrestling media wants to pay people for anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we were credited as Kurt Brown, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember the San Bernardino articles. I absolutely remember them and just, you know, the pictures. And it was it was a, a promotion that was not covered by the after magazines. So it was kind of like something, you know, from a different world for me. But, yeah, I definitely remember those. I thought they yeah, were for a and, different and those... magazine, not the ring. But obviously I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, those, well, those, yeah, and those little arenas are intriguing me all the more as I'm doing research. Yeah, I, 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 researching a number of the Latino stars who came up like in the 30s and 40s. And it's interesting, there are some who, you know, got a medium push in LA, but they got huge pushes in the smaller towns like Fresno, Bakersfield, San Bernardino, one of them being Jimmy El Pulpo, who everybody's probably tired of hearing me talk about, but, he was a guy who initially got a big push in LA and he eventually went to a mid card push in Los Angeles, but man, and all the other little towns, like they usually kept him in main events and there was something of value to him. Like Louis Miller's t- towns was, uh, I believe it was Fresno. And, and I'm just curious about the whole phenomenon of those smaller arenas and, you know, their value. And, and you know, it was a special time. Like when I went to San Bernardino, I'd usually go about once a month. And that was the first time I'd see that that experience of seeing the same fans there every week. And it was like a little community with them. It was really, there's something very endearing about it. Same thing with Hadco Plaza, the Lucha Libre promotion, which uh, an old friend Lloyd Lee turned me on to in 1981. You know, that was a place that promoted in a little place that used to be a German-American fraternity hall in the 40s. And they ran for, I think, seven years, if I remember correctly. They ran Lucha Libre every Sunday, uh, 5 p.m., and you'd go there and you'd see the same people. And we were usually the only gringos there, but, you know, all the fans would just like, hey, how you guys been? It was like these little tiny arenas were like little extended families. And see, I, I never had that, like because the Boston Garden, you sat somewhere else every every month, and yes, you know. So I, I've never experienced that. Tell me how you got when you got how you got in the business. Like, did you first get in when Tom Burke got you that press pass, or did you get in uh, before that? If it yeah, if it wasn't for Tom Burke getting me the press pass, I probably would have never had any involvement in wrestling, or if I did, it probably wouldn't have been nearly as fun because what Tom Burke did was he got in touch with Jeff Walton, who he had been friends with for a number of years already. And 
you know, and he told me, hey, uh, oh, I, I did a newsletter for a really short time, and he asked me to send one to Jeff, and Walton was kind enough to actually write me back and say how much he enjoyed my newsletter and invited me to the San Bernardino Arena as his guest. And I got to say, uh, every time I went there, Jeff Walton made sure I got in, you know, <laughs> uh, never had me pay for the ticket. And if for some reason he wasn't there, Jesse Hernandez would sneak me in. God bless him. And then from that, I just, uh, oh, again, through Tom Burke, I met a wrestler named Tim Flowers. And through Diamond him, Timothy I, Flowers. Yes, yes. I met him and through him, I met Bobby Lane. <laughs> And then through Tim Flowers, I met Dr. Jerry Graham and, uh, you know, didn't stay in touch with Tim Flowers too long. But Dr. Jerry Graham was kind of one of the guys. He and Tom Hankins actually started teaching me to actually work in the ring. And (laughs) that's how that all started. But it all started with Tom Burke. (laughs) God bless him. Excellent. I I have never spoken with or corresponded with Jeff Walton. I want to someday. He was great. I saw him in Memphis as a manager, and I finally remembered the name as you were speaking, Tux Newman. He was. I thought Tux Newman was great, and this was before I knew he was Jeff Walton. Yes, and here in L.A., he was Jeff Walton, the the sweet baby face guy, hyping this you know Friday night's events and chiding the ruder wrestlers if they were you know becoming you know too uh, contrary with everybody. I mean, he was famous for screaming Richmond nine five one seven one. When I st- I'm trying to remember what his role was when I started watching. Well, okay, when I started watching, it was wrestling. We had the most perfect TV show the Saturday night channel 13 show. We had what I call the Holy Trinity of wrestling commentators. And this is just the TV studio show. This wasn't even the Olympic auditorium. This was a studio. We had Jimmy Lennon as the ring announcer. We had Dick Lane, who is like the Lance Russell or Gordon Soley of uh, California. In my mind, the best ever. And then we had Gene LaBelle, doing the ringside locker room interviews. And that was like, it didn't even matter if the wrestlers were good or not. It's not, not saying they weren't good. They were, but these three guys just made that show dynamic. And then there was Jeff Walton who would do the Richmond nine, five, one, seven, one, this Friday, you know, five dollars, three fifty dollar and a half for kids. I mean, they just kept that show alive. And, and Dick, Dick Lane just, he had a firecracker of a voice that just, you know, you were just happy to hear him, you know, very personable character. And when Dick Lane retired, that's when it started going really downhill. In my opinion, I don't know. Ah. I couldn't tell you that, but that studio show, suddenly they had Gene LaBelle doing the commentating and, uh, he was great at ringside interviews, but, uh, the commentating one, it sounded like he didn't really want to be there. <laughs> oh man, those are never, never good. <laughs> and I know Jeff Walton, I think did, did took over on the interviews to some point. I think I might be, my memory might be a bit fuzzy, but Gene LaBelle carrying the show just didn't work. You know, you know, wrestling was still quality. And then when Chavo came in, that was a great period but I think one of the things that was a mistake was when they had all three Guerrero brothers in the promotion at the same time, and they pushed them all through the roof to the point 
where the heels didn't get that much of a rub, to be honest with you. And I think that kind of, and that's not a knock on the Guerreros. That's no derogatory statement there. They were all great, but when you're pushing all three really hard at the same time, I mean, one of the top heels was Tank Patton. And even though he is a top heel and got mic time, he rarely went over on TV because <laughs> he was always dropping to the Guerreros. <laughs> I mean, I remember when Mike Von Erich debuted, and I'm like, you know, three Von Erichs already felt preposterous, and now he had a fourth one. And I, I just don't see – I think it's a very difficult balancing act to try to push three brothers, especially as baby faces. And his singles baby faces, I mean, it, it was awkward when World Class was at its best and they had the Freebirds in there. I mean, I don't know how you, you – because you have that dynamic, three Von Erichs and three Freebirds. Like, how do you do that with three Guerreros? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I don't know – you know, I can't speak for most of the arenas, but I remember in San Bernardino, if he, if Chava was gone for a while – like the week before he'd come back, they'd say, fans, next week, Shava was returning. And for the most part, the arena would go, all right, yay. But there, you would see a number of fans visibly going, oh, Christ, won't he ever leave? Oh, know? man. And it's not that, the, not that he was bad or anything. It's just, you know, he was there all the time. Anything can, you know, kind of lose its luster if it's there too long. I remember when I first started getting magazines and reading about Chavo Guerrero, the million-dollar rookie, and I was, I was always a fan of Chavo Guerrero. I, I think he could and should have been way bigger in the sport. Can you tell the, our audience a little bit about like how he got started in Los Angeles using or was the million-dollar rookie thing just like a magazine thing? I don't think it was. Um, I, I don't remember the term million dollar rookie, but what I remember and what Chavo used to tell people uh, in later years when he you know finally would break kayfabe and talk about being pushed was, and I remember seeing this on TV where, you know, Ernie Ladd was the America's champion and he's talking about, I don't think there's any good challenges here. And I think Gene LaBelle saying, well, what about the Zodiac? Nah, nah, I don't want to wrestle no Zodiac. And, and he says, no, Mr. TV announcer, none of these guys are good. And then he says, well, what about Chavo Guerrero? And he says, you know, yeah, why not? I'll give him a shot right now, tonight, right here. And so on TV, Chavo Guerrero just like runs circles around lab and pins him clean in the ring and everybody's excited because Chavo's the new champion. And Lad grabs the belt and walks away with it. And they're saying, Lad, you said that this was a title match. And he says, I didn't sign no contract, Mr. TV announcer. Bully, bully, so I lied. And, oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and again, Chavo told everybody, just like with Ruben Wars, that was all Ernie Lad's idea. That was his, you know, that was his angle. And. That put Chavo on the map, and then a few months later, when Leo Garibaldi pushed Piper, a rookie Roddy Piper, bam, uh, I mean, the two of them were magic. And again, that's something that just, that feud went on so long between Chavo and Piper that one of the newspapers even made a, a joke uh, after about a year and a half of their feud saying, well, wrestling fans, summer reruns are coming early this year. <laughs> Roddy Piper... <laughs> Is wrestling Chavo again. And, uh, you know, I don't know who was booking at this point, but it got so bad that they were advertising this Friday night, Chavo versus Piper, America's title. 
And that was a Wednesday night. And guess what? The main event was on TV that evening. Oh, no. Chavo versus Piper. Uh, <laughs> so I... So it wasn't, it wasn't just, it wasn't so much the wrestlers. It was whoever was booking. I don't know. You know, I, I was always told Leo Garibaldi was the brilliant booker and who knows, maybe he was, and he was starting to lose his focus. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I, but yeah, you could tell LA was starting to go off the rails, you know, when they had the bionic wrestler or that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, people think, you know, if you're a, if you're a good booker today, you're going to be a good booker tomorrow. And that is just never the case in wrestling. You know, guys lose their touch. They, you know, they fall. The business leaves them behind. Sometimes it happens. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember years ago, Bill Anderson telling me, uh, like, I can't remember who he was referring to, but there were some several older wrestlers bitching about how the business has left them behind. And Bill Anderson said, well, they should talk to uh, Pat Patterson and Rene Goulet. And it says the reason they should, because like they still have jobs. They're not wrestlers, but they learned how to adapt to the way the business changes and accept it. And, you know, I think that's like the Achilles tendon with a lot of people, whether you're a wrestler or a promoter or a booker. I mean, just from all the whatever history I've researched or read, that seems to be what nails people is they don't adapt to changing times, changing media, that sort of thing. I couldn't agree more. Tell us about Roddy Piper in Los Angeles. This was his first a real push. As far as I could see, he'd been in the business. I want to say three or four years, but he's finally getting his shot now. Uh, like how did he debut? Like, tell us a little bit, bit about that. Well, that's funny. He debuted as a babyface who basically got his lunch fed to him. And I mean, really got his lunch fed to him. And then one night, he comes to the ring with his kilt and he had a t shirt, you know, one of those cheaply made t shirts he got with the flannel letters on them at a mall. But it said on it, if you can't beat them, join them. And he's accompanying Javar Rook to the ring, who was Johnny Rods doing his Abdul the Butcher Sheikh gimmick. And suddenly this baby-faced Chavo, who looked meek and mild, has this big grin on his face. And Javar Rook comes in and just destroys somebody. And then Piper kind of pulls him away. And then he Piper takes a microphone and says, like, I am this man's manager now, and uh, he has also taught me how to be a real wrestler. And he says, I have been wrestling by the rules uh, for a long time, and I want you people to read my shirt. And then he pauses and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I forgot. Most of you haven't learned that art just yet. So what it says is if you cannot beat them, join them. And I learned that I was doing everything the wrong way and – they had a storyline, I guess, where Java Rook in one of the other towns destroyed Piper so bad that he wanted to learn how to like be as evil as Java Rook. And he was magic from then. I mean, it was almost like he was just anointed. And I mean, on the mic, that guy was gold from day one and he never stopped. No, I, I've seen some Piper from the Los Angeles days, and I mean, you know, I mean, talk about a natural behind the mic, but that is a great story. I had no idea Roddy Piper 
uh, started as a babyface in Los Angeles, and and that was his trajectory to the top. Did he ever turn back babyface like he did in just about every other territory? Portland, no, and I wondered if he would because I like I had been watching long enough to know that that's kind of almost a natural cycle. Is eventually if somebody's a heel long enough that they're going to turn them face just because you know they're too over. <laughs> and but he never did. And one of the things that you know. People miss, you know, but since the uh, a lot of the LA TV tapings don't exist, one of the things that a lot of the fans of Piper from Mid Atlantic and W Dove have missed is the chicken shit Roddy Piper, which was great, where he was cocky, arrogant, a mean son of a bitch, but then they would get him locked into like a loser leave town match versus whoever, and he would say, "No, wait, wait." No wait wait wait! We can't do this match. I I what? I don't want to leave this town. I this is my territory. And then he would try to make nice with the baby face, and and he would be begging fans to write the Olympic Auditorium and say, you know, please tell them you don't want Roddy Piper to leave. And the fans would get all excited because they thought he's gonna, you know, Piper's gonna leave town. But then he would always, yeah, who did he? He he had loser leave towns with uh, Tank Patton, Terry Sawyer, Keith Franks. But it was the same formula every time where he was the chicken shit heel just begging, you know, begging to be let out of this match because they, you know, he's saying, this is the greatest territory I've ever wrestled in. I don't want to leave. (laughs) That is phenomenal. I could do this forever, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. I want everyone to know this is like the first nice day we've had up here in Nashville, New Hampshire since 2021. And I have had my mute button put on a lot because, you know, even though I have the windows closed, like everyone's outside, it can get noisy. <laughs> Kurt, I have been cracking up like so much that you just haven't heard it because of that. I mean, I had a great time doing this with you. Thank you. Oh, and thank you, man. I I enjoy your work, and man, it it it's great to just kind of ch- be able to just powwow with you like this. Hopefully, that's we get what I want Street Wrestling to be soon. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This was an excellent show. So, so, thank you for taking the time, and we'll we'll definitely do this again. And thank you for having me. This has been fun. All right, thank you. No, I had I had an excellent time. Like I said, I've been I, you have no idea how much I've been cracking up. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm so glad you enjoy. I enjoyed it too. I've been having good. a blast. <laughs> yeah, and, and thank you for all of the great information. By the way, oh, it's my pleasure. I hope all I gave right. it to you correctly. No, <laughs> I'm my sure you memory did. bank is still working well. <laughs> <laughs> Same here, man. Believe me. <laughs> All right. I want to thank uh, Brian Lass and the Arcadian Vanguard Network for giving me this platform. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, for all of the great work he does for this podcast. You guys have no idea. And that's it, everyone. Thank you for listening. We'll we'll talk to you again next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 